Welcome to another episode of Clothes Horse, the podcast that will always carry a torch for the Delius catalog. I'm Amanda, and I'm your host. Today, we will be discussing the wild world of e-commerce with my friend Kim, a longtime buyer and expert in all things related to buying stuff off the internet. E-commerce, aka the buying and selling of stuff online, is no joke. 165 billion packages and envelopes are shipped each year. That translates into 1.2 million trees, 242 million gallons of water, and 5 million gallons of oil every day. And most of these shipments are things we have bought or are returning. In 2019, we spent as much money on buying stuff online as we did on eating at restaurants and drinking in bars. That's a lot. And we spent about 30% more on buying stuff online than we did on gas for our cars. Obviously, 2020 is going to be OMG so e-commerce heavy. I think we'll all go back to shopping in real stores as soon as it's safe. It will feel both nostalgic and new at the same time. And surely you've heard about how the exponential growth of e-commerce has been a direct contributor to the steady decline of popular department and mall stores around the country. Some people like to call it the retail apocalypse. I like that term because I picture empty, beautifully decaying malls on a Mad Max-style landscape. Arguing about whether or not the retail apocalypse is real, if we are all really actually planning to give up in-person shopping and the joy of discovering something in a cute boutique, well, those are conversations that have been going on for years, and no one has a clear answer yet. But to be certain, some brands and retailers have been utterly destroyed by the rise of e-commerce. Well, sort of. Blockbuster was decimated by the arrival of Netflix and other streaming services. Toys R Us could never make an inroad against other brands selling toys online like Walmart, Amazon, and Target. But to be fair, Toys R Us also had a ton of debt it could never work out. Sears, oh poor dear Sears, was late to the game with e-commerce, I mean well after everyone else, and was still always too far behind the rest to catch up. Big bookstore chains like Borders and Barnes and Noble felt the heat of the simultaneous rise of cheap books at Amazon and the ease of downloading a digital book for Kindle. I'm especially saddened by the loss of Borders because it was the only cool thing bookish alternative kids like myself could do in rural Pennsylvania in the 90s. So I have many fond memories of just hanging out at Borders on a Friday night. I also have a secret soft spot for Barnes & Noble, where I spent a year proudly serving Starbucks coffee after my daughter was born and before we moved to Portland. In fact, I think my first day in the Barnes & Noble cafe was about a week after I gave birth. Man, I love that job. So many great people work there. This is a good time to remind you to support your local bookstores, which are way cooler than these big chains. They're filled with super smart and helpful employees, and sometimes even a cute resident cat. Other types of retailers like clothing and furniture have continued to have strong business offline, IRL if you will, because customers want to see and try these things out in person. It makes sense, right? And once again, who knows what will happen in this new weird COVID world, but in 2019, before all of this, the Washington Post cited a report by the investment firm UBS, which estimated that nearly 75,000 Retail shops that sell clothing, electronics, and furniture were expected to close by 2026. Once again, who knows what will happen? I think when big chains fail, it's a lot more than just people shopping online. Usually there's a lot of bad debt, overexpansion, and poor product strategy. 
but I'm super sad to see so many vintage stores and boutiques close in the last few months. This is a loving reminder to all of you to please, please get to know your local boutiques and vintage sellers, support them as much as you can digitally, and don't forget to visit them when they reopen. If you yourself are a vintage seller or a boutique owner who is fearful about the future, overwhelmed by the prospect of shifting your business online, or just in a quagmire regarding your finances, drop me a line and either I or one of my talented friends will help you out. I mean it. Without these small brands, these small stores, these small boutiques, these people hustling and selling vintage, our options are so bad and they're not good for our world. So it's really important that we support these entrepreneurs. Okay, let's get into today's episode. I think you're going to love Kim. Today, I'm really excited to talk with my very good friend, Kim, about e-commerce and how that industry functions and sort of just like dissect it for all of the listeners. Kim and I also work together at Nasty Gal, as a lot of our guests seem to. So many awesome, smart people came from Nasty Gal. Kim and I have had a lot of really important life experiences together. Uh, She was with me on my first date with my husband, (laughs) (laughs) which is totally normal. (laughs) Um, Also on my first date with my husband, where Kim was also, uh, we saw a man drown in the ocean at Zuma Beach. Mm -hmm. Few people probably look back on their first date with their significant other and uh, cry. (laughs) We actually, every year, commemorate that day and talk about the guy who's drowned. I don't want to say his name here, but we saved news clippings. And I don't know, it's kind of weird, but it it gave us the kick in the ass to maybe try to make a relationship together. I mean, it, it, it led to a good thing in a weird way. And also, Kim has taken me to the urgent care for food poisoning and watched a doctor squirt my blood all over the wall. So I feel like we're really really in it. So Kim, why don't you tell us a little bit about who you are, what you do, why you're passionate about retail or not? <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh my God. I'm just remembering all of these, these stories. And you're also leaving out some really integral parts about most of these stories. But <laughs> like I what? Oh, you mean like the clown cake or the arugula salad? <laughs> Or how about how about that my um, bathing suit had been down, falling down? Oh, I didn't. I did. <laughs> I think if you want the world to know that <laughs> that you exposed yourself know. by accident, and, and you're 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 not soon to be, but ended up being husband was just so quiet about it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's, that's why we're married, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> that's why we're married. <laughs> he was just eating like seven loaves of bread. Yeah, that's true. That's true. We all, yeah, everyone's everyone's eye was on the was on the um, the ocean at that point when the person drowned. And yeah, what a crazy yeah. day! We've really been through some stuff, Kim, and we both worked at Nasty Gal. <laughs> that's true. I mean, like, oh. yeah. It's a pivotal, p- pivotal time. It really, it really was. I think we've we've seen some stuff together over the years, both personally and work related. And it's sad that we're now divided by this stupid continent. Yeah, exactly. I know. <laughs> so anyway, so back to like you as yeah. a professional. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
Um, you know, the majority of my career has been actually in fashion buying um, for like a little bit more of a glamorous position within the um, more designer category than all the way into um, like outlet buying and then to Nasty Gal. Um, but at the forefront of all of it has been my absolute passion for e-commerce and understanding how that kind of keeps growing and maturing. Um, I was doing a lot of consulting when I was uh, in pretty much over the past about six years doing consulting for e-commerce. Um, I did start my career at ShopUp when it was just a fledgling small little brand before Amazon had even bought it and saw that that was really the future of this industry and just became really immersed in it. And, you know, it's helped inform my entire career. And now I, you know, I kind of pivoted out of buying and into sales and marketing. So, you know, you don't have to go to school for it. You can basically just, you know, grow into these positions and, you know, use firsthand experience to do things that, that actually inspire you. So now I work for a company called Graphlance. We're based here in LA. I've been there for four years now. We have our own um, in-house factory. We make product based on the sustainable material. We have a really great story. We make really good things that I actually feel really, really passionate about. And I've been able to grow with that brand. And we've seen it scale specifically through the e-commerce channel and specifically through this COVID crisis as well. You know, and since I've been in this industry for, you know, over 15 years, watching this this channel change so much and how the customer behaves change so much and the needs and all the accelerations of apps and marketing capabilities. It's just kind of outstanding. And we're really just scratching the surface of it. I mean, imagine 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 30 years from now, how it's going to keep changing and evolving, especially during this crisis, how it's just kind of pushed everything forward and the needs for this channel has become, you know, the, the lifeblood of most people now. So I guess that's kind of a little bit of my backstory and my passion. You're absolutely right that e-commerce has changed the way we shop in every single way. And one thing I have observed during this COVID crisis is that brands or retailers that were really hesitant or maybe had been postponing yeah. starting an e-com business of their own, like basically building a website where they could sell stuff directly mm -hmm. to the consumer. That's what we're talking about here. Those those people who put that off or didn't prioritize it, I mean, they're paying the price now. They are. I have seen some boutiques that I'm a fan of. They're they're just they're gone now. Like that's it. Mm -hmm. They just adopted it too late, and you know you can't miss months of sales and still pay the bills if you're not selling something online right now. And you know what's really interesting also, and we saw that at Nasty Gal, was that there was this kind of like, I don't know, a g glamour about having a store. You know, Nasty Gal was, was mostly direct to consumer, and it was just like, we want to get into retail. And you're like, why? You're, you're in one of the most scalable models. Why would you move into retail? And it's just, it was like having, having a trophy, this prize of, of having this space where, you know, I get it experiential, um, where the customer can come and touch and feel and be like actually immersed in the brand. But it is, it, 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 it hemorrhages money. You know, it was, it's never the model to really go after these days, but 
it's always been seen as this 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 thing to aspire to when you come from that outlook of being in e-commerce. Oh, absolutely. It's almost like your business doesn't exist yeah. if you don't have a real store. Yeah. And I, I mean, obviously things are different now, yeah. right now, but even a couple years ago when I would be helping different clients or working in the startup environment, helping them with their pitch for investors, the thing that they always got the pushback on was like, okay, well, when are you going to open a store? How many stores can you open? Or can you revise this, this uh, total revenue plan to add like 100 stores <laughs> in 10 years? Like it would be so, and, and for me coming from Nasty Gal, where you and I mm-hmm. saw stores bleed the company. I mean, bleed the company because the Mm -hmm. operating expenses were high, because the leases were high, because they needed so much inventory to stuff in there that wasn't moving. And then, you know, they didn't have an infrastructure to move that inventory out of there. And you have to staff, like get a whole new staff. You have to get staff that, that, that understands like physical retail channels versus e-commerce retail channels, you know, and that's, it's, it's just harder to manage in, on the physical level sometimes because e-commerce is just based all on like numbers and data. And this is, you know, this is like people, humans coming in and out of your store or trying to lure them in and get them shopping, you know? It, yeah. It, you know? Yeah. It, <laughs> it requires a completely different like arm of your business and like management and it just costs a lot. It's it's true, and it almost. I mean, in in two, what's the year now? In twenty twenty, yeah, it's somehow. And I think if you said this to someone twenty years ago, that it would have blown mm-hmm. their mind. In twenty twenty, it's easier to have an ecom business than mm-hmm. to have a store. Period. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So okay, so for all of you who aren't into lingo or this whole time have been like, what the f are they talking about? E-commerce refers to buying stuff off the internet. Like it's really easy. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> As if the listener does not know what e-commerce yes. is, but you know, for the layman, <laughs> for the layman, if you're a layman of the, the e-commerce world, <laughs> under a rock <laughs> and <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I mean, this contrasts with the old timey way of shopping in a store, which we've just discussed, which is often referred to as like brick and mortar, bricks and mortar, uh, basically, you know, referring to like a physical location. So, Let's talk a little bit about how e-commerce came to be this thing that we all can't live without. Before COVID, the global fashion e-commerce business was expected to generate $713 billion in sales in 2020. And this might be increasing based on the closure of stores, or it may decline due to the global recession. Like there's, there's no telling, but no matter what, it's a huge business. In the US, e-commerce is about 20% of total fashion sales. And once again, this could change by COVID because like, who's going into a store and buying clothes right now? I mean, you can't even try them on. So you may as well just order it online. With the headline, the internet is opened, the August 12th, 1994 issue of the New York Times chronicled the sale between two friends. It was the first ever e-commerce sale. And it was a sting CD. <laughs> you gotta be kidding me. I know, I know. Ding CD. I just I mean, I know he's a musician, but I, I always just know him as the guy who's like really into tantric sex. <laughs> I, I actually really liked Sting when I was in middle school because I I didn't I didn't you know, when you're in middle school in the eighty like eighties, nineties, 
you don't really own very much stuff. And I remember having the Robin Hood Prince of Thieves soundtrack. And oh, was on it. that movie was so <laughs> romantic. I saw that on a date. So, so romantic. romantic. And so basically what we're saying, I mean, I think you're going to agree with me here, is that Sting is responsible for the rise of e-commerce. Like without Sting, there's no Amazon. Yes. <laughs> and so basically like <laughs> Jeff Bezos should send Sting like a, the most expensive edible arrangement that you can mm -hmm. like the really deluxe one not one that comes in a mug you know but like one that's in a huge vase do you actually know that those things are really expensive no I know they are sometimes I'm like oh wouldn't it be fun to send my friend one as a prank and then I get on there and I'm like uh it's gonna be like a hundred dollars yeah they're so expensive online sales I mean like buying stuff online is such a huge part of our lives like I can't I mean I've lived in a world where you couldn't do that and you could maybe order stuff through a catalog and you could like maybe get your mom to pay with her credit card but otherwise you'd have to mail a check and then yeah. they would ship your stuff and so your stuff would come like a month later like that's if you didn't buy stuff in a store in the 90s this is how you bought stuff like in a catalog yeah I used to buy J. Crew. My mother hated that I would go and shop at resale stores and I would always come back with like a t-shirt with a swear word on it. <laughs> she would accidentally lose them all the time. And I would literally just find them in the trash on the top of the trash, you know? <laughs> so I would go down there every day and make sure she wasn't throwing them out. But so she would give me the J crew catalog. So that's how I kind of got, you know, J crew back, back then. Like it wasn't in every single mall. It was, yeah, you know, it was exotic. It, it, it was, it was very aspirational. And the people were, people weren't all wearing it in your class. Like it was all different. It was, it was, at least you could stand out a little bit. Who, what was the, the 90s girl with like? Oh, Delia's. For me, it was Delia's. all about the Delia's catalog. And mm -hmm. I, you know, I, I mean, we've done episodes about this, but like clothes were more expensive in the 90s in proportion to mm -hmm. your income. And for me, Delia's was really, really expensive. You know, I was a teenager. Was. I definitely was not a teenager of means. Uh, most of my clothes came from the thrift store as well. But Delia's was so cool to me. Uh, I think I maybe bought something from Delia's like once or twice. And I don't know if you remember Alloy. Yeah. I would also buy from them here and there, but I'd have to like save money. But then my grandmother discovered that in Reading, Pennsylvania, there was a Delia's outlet <gasps> and I could literally, I know. And it was like a real outlet. It's not like what outlets are now. Yeah. Right. It was really overstocked from the, from the catalog. Yeah. And you a could gem. go, a gem. you could go there and spend a hundred dollars and come out with like 40 items. I mean, I am not exaggerating. Like I would stock up for like six months, you know, on t-shirts and like Roxy stuff and Genco jeans oh. and, uh, you know, all cute little cardigans and crop tops. And I mean, I could go on and on many chokers. Like it would be the biggest yeah. day. We've definitely ate. We've just, we've just aged ourselves. Like, we we did. We did. And then, <laughs> that's, that's why we're so wise. Yeah. So that was how you used to have to buy stuff, but, but things changed in the late nineties and the early aughts. And since 2000 online sales have actually increased more than 10 times, like a lot. Let's talk about buying stuff off the internet, because as you know, now, Kim and I are really old and we haven't had a whole life of that. So Kim, do you remember the first thing you bought online? You know, you asked me this a while ago and I still don't exactly remember, but I'm pretty sure I bought something from, it was one of the first online fashion, like independent 
fashion retailers is called um, girlshop.com. Mm-hmm. I believe I bought something off of there. But also, this was around the same time I was working okay. in the shop bop warehouse. So I got a lot of, I just bought clothes from there most of the time. But, yeah. Yeah, of course. But yeah, but this was just like even more like kind of cool kid, super independent. Yeah, they're not around anymore. But I mean, a lot of those brands aren't. I actually remember the first thing I bought off the internet was in college. <clears throat> and I specifically can remember the moment of sitting in the computer lab under the library at NYU and ordering this shirt that said girls kick ass. Stop. I really <laughs> like, still make that shirt. It was cool then. Okay. It was a different time. Uh, and it was exciting. You know, it was like the first time I bought some clothing off the yeah. internet specifically because the, I mean, that's, that's a whole different ball of wax. Right. Yeah. So there are two companies that are really responsible for revolutionizing e-commerce, like making e-commerce what it is today. And both of them launched in 1995. So one of them was Amazon. I think everybody's going to guess that, right? The other one was eBay. Yeah. And they were kind of like two different business models, and they continue to be very two different business models today. Jeff Bezos just happened to start Amazon as the internet was growing up and becoming more accessible to the average American. And if you recall, it was a bookstore initially eBay was a lot different because it allowed everyday people, not just big retailers, to sell product and make money on the internet with like little to no startup investment. And I think you can see a direct line from eBay to Etsy to today's resale apps like Depop and Poshmark. And in those days, like if you ordered something from eBay, it was it was a drag. Did you ever buy anything from eBay back then, Kim? I don't remember. I mean, I was an eBay-aholic <laughs> and I, this was the thing about buying something on eBay. So you would win something, right? That was the other thing is it wasn't just you were buying, you were like bidding and yeah. there was some excitement and strategy to it. Uh, you'd win. You would have to either mail a, a money order, in most cases a money order, which like, I don't even know where to get a money order in 2020. You gotta go to the bank. You gotta go to the bank or like the post office or... You could, and this was rare, this became increasingly rare, you could write a personal check and mail, either way you were mailing it, right? You were mailing a money order or you were mailing a yeah. check. And then the person would deposit it. You'd have to wait for it to clear, especially if it was a personal check. And yeah. then they would mail whatever you bought from them. So we're talking weeks and weeks. Like still, it wasn't like the instant gratification business that we know e-commerce to be now. And so payment was really complicated for everyone. And those, those kinds of issues have been removed by services like PayPal and Venmo, and et cetera. And those were all really developed with eBay in mind. Like without, without eBay, we wouldn't be sending each other money to split our dinner. You know, it just, it just wouldn't happen. And so now, thanks to investment that both eBay and Amazon poured into their early businesses, it's easier than ever to open an online store. In 1999, if you were like, hey, guess what? I'm going to start my own online store, which everyone would be like, you're crazy. Mm -hmm. But let's just say you you were like, yeah, I don't care. I'm, you know, I'm a trendsetter here. Uh, you would need about $100,000. And that wouldn't include inventory or a warehouse or packaging or anything. Like that $100,000 would be to build your website. So today... Uh, you can start a business online for like $30, possibly even less. And you can launch a store over a weekend. It's not going to be six months of development with an engineer. And even things like logistics, like shipping, which 
are have always been a pain point for anybody selling online, you can you can handle that with third party apps, meaning that like if you want to start an online business, basically you just need a computer and a printer and you're good to go. So there are a lot of advantages to e-commerce. I mean, Kim and I have already been talking about like how dumb a store is. Yeah. <laughs> like a real store. Um, one of those is like unlimited choice. Haven't you ever wondered why your favorite store has way more selection online than in the store? All of these online exclusives. That's because you don't have to jam them under one roof. You don't have to merchandise them. You can, you know, it's just easier to to, to share them with the consumer. Right. And Kim and I have both bought for brick and mortar stores as well. Mm-hmm. And so we know there are a lot of limitations in terms of product and it might seem counterintuitive, but the more stuff you put on the store, like the less it sells <laughs> because it, it doesn't get the attention it needs, right? Or it doesn't look as desirable, but at the same time, and this is another issue I've encountered at different jobs. When you have an online store, you kind of have to launch constant newness, like your, your customers like addicted to it. And it can be a really great way to test new ideas without buying a ton of inventory. You could just buy 80 units and, you know, see if people like it, or you could buy 20 units. But the disadvantage is you're going to get really oversorted immediately. You're going to have 50 pages of results in like dresses. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely a point when it it becomes just too hard for the customer to even find or know that this thing exists. Because oftentimes customers don't, don't even know that they want something until they see it. So getting it even available and and obvious. You could say like, well, couldn't the customers just search for it? But something that I encounter time and time again is actually the technology and functionality around the search function on a lot of online stores is bad. It's just, there's still a lot of opportunity to make search easier and it's just not there yet. And it's not for lack of trying, but you can go on to a site and search green midi dress and you're going to get everything that's green you might get something that has green in the name. You might get a midi skirt. You might also just get some pants. Mm-hmm. It, it usually depends on the um, the algorithms that the the search function is set up on, and so there's you can you basically for like Shopify or for a lot of these other brands you could plug in an app that's like a third part or yeah third party app that helps you with your search function and they're the the better they are they're so expensive yeah for sure this requires all these different searches and all these different like levels so for like a very basic search function it's it's you know you're not gonna get something very good you you are gonna you're not gonna get something very honed and and i think that means a lot of retailers are trying to build their own search function because it is so expensive because the technology has a long way to go and that's why it's still just not that great Mm -hmm. So another advantage to having an online store is the overhead is much lower, right? Because stores are really expensive. Like as Kim and I have talked about, you got to hire people to work there. You got to pay rent. You need inventory to fill it. But then there's more. You need displays. You need signage, fixtures, insurance. You might need some security guards. And what about hangers? I mean, it's just, it's just an endless list of things you need. Yeah, cleaning. It's like people that come in and clean, people that come in, you know. Like- yeah. Yeah, that's a really good point, too. And, you know, you need more promotion around the existence of that store. Mm -hmm. It's just really, really expensive. Whereas with an e-commerce site, you don't have to have any physical space that people ever have to come to. But wait, I have some I've got actually a bunch of more advantages. 
Okay. Okay. <laughs> Tell me more advantages. So other advantages is basically just an access oh, yeah. to customer. Good point. You know, having an access to these diverse niche look um, customers that are not location-based. Yeah. I mean, yeah. So if you're based in like Philadelphia, like Amanda is, you know, like it's, it's not going to decide whether or not your business succeeds or fails based on what the people actually in Philadelphia, like, um, you know, the ability to digitally send people to your website, to digitally market to these people. Um, another really big thing is, um, gathering first party information, um, and that's basically, you know, like newsletters and, you know, if you're starting to get targeted through ads and things like having a customer's information is extremely important. I mean, it's what some of the reason why companies actually sell is because they have a massive newsletter list or following or Instagram. Like that's, that's how they're valued now is by how many people they actually have the, the information for. And then, you know, being able to tell your actual story as a brand, having that ownership of n- not just the story or, or visually speaking to them, but also just the user experience, how the, the, cons- the customer is being treated. If they purchase something down to just, you know, dealing with customer service, things like that, being able to own the entire experience with that customer and being able to, to cultivate what would you call it? Like a community? Yeah. Like a community and um, trust with that customer, you know, having that control over how your product is, is just shown is extremely important. You know, 24 hour shopping capabilities, you know, stores, you know, are limited to like eight hours a day. This is 24 hours mm-hmm. offering digital programs, be, you know, just be more accessible essentially to, um, to different customers and, and findable. Um, and going back to the idea of the mailing list, like having the contacts mm-hmm. when nasty gal went bankrupt, boohoo bought them. Yes. Maybe I just blew your mind, but nasty gal now is boohoo. It's the same thing. <laughs> uh, and I and I do feel like to a certain extent that was not really broadcast to the world. So if you don't know that, don't feel bad. So this is the thing: when Nasty Gal went bankrupt and Boohoo bought them, they didn't buy Nasty Gal per se. Like they didn't exactly. buy the office or the inventory or like even the furniture in the office. They they didn't keep the team because they only really wanted two things: mm-hmm. they wanted the mailing list. And they wanted what they're calling like the intellectual mm-hmm. property. So like the website, the art direction, you know, that whole vault of marketing. The mailing list and the Instagram yes. following, which was in the millions. <clears throat> right. So it was huge. So basically. So valuable. So basically one night in the middle of the night, Nasty Gal, as we knew it when we worked there, turned off and Boohoo turned on. And the site looked a little different, but like not very much. I think you wouldn't have noticed it if you didn't look at it 100 times a day like we did. And it was it was confusing. Like all of a sudden it's like, oh, hey, it's yesterday was Monday. Now it's Tuesday. Now the Instagram is being run out of London. So is the website. That's where the product's shipping from. I mean, it was a very confusing uh, transition for the customers, but it was really smart because they wanted the customers, right? Absolutely. Nastiel had spent a lot of money to get those customers over the years. And they wanted to break into the U.S. Right. market, and that was that's the best way to do it. We're going to talk about this more a little bit later, but Kim and I don't really like to gossip about people, but we love to gossip about brands in the business. And so in the beginning, that was a tough gamble for Boohoo. They spent a lot of money, and mm-hmm. the sales weren't coming in, right? Like they, 
people were confused. They got the product. They were like, why did it take a month? Like it was, it was messy in the beginning. And maybe that's because it was so sort of secretive, but I've heard and I've read when I say I've heard, I mean, I've read that they've turned that around and actually now nasty. I was like a profitable business for them. And it's, it's more recognizable in the United States and Australia than Boohoo is. And it has a certain level of cachet that Boohoo never will, even though that product's coming from the same factory. I mean, it's the same stuff. It's, yeah, it just has a different label on it. It's the same product. It just has the Nasty Gal label on it. So that's an example of how an e-commerce brand can be more successful because it can reach all of these people. But you couldn't have a, have a Nasty Gal store and close it for a minute and then the next day open with like a whole new staff and brand new product in there and not not have a huge blow. Yeah. Like that would be crazy, right? So e-commerce gives you this freedom to exist as more of a concept than like a location, I guess. Mm -hmm. Okay. So well, those are the advantages to e-com, but there are disadvantages too. It's not all easy. So one, it costs a lot of money to launch new product, like generally about $200 a style. And that can give a take depending on the kind of models you're using and who's retouching your photos and where you're shooting. And for an average product, it's, you have to shoot it on a model. To get a pay for a model. To be fair, you could choose not to use a model. I have worked places that have mm -hmm. tested just using like a dress form and it's never good. It's never good. It looks like Etsy. It does. And then on top of shooting it on a person, you're also going to do what we call a flat shot, which is when you like lay the product out with not on a body and take some photos of that. And that alone, sometimes that's a special position for the style. Like that's a separate stylist. Like it's very challenging. And you need the flat shot also because of um, edit, like editorial campaigns. Um, you know, if like, let's say Vogue reaches out to you and wants to feature one of your products in, in a, a campaign, not a campaign, but like a, a story, they will want your, your flat shot, your white shot. And you're also going to want to retouch these photos. I mean, we all know, like, take a selfie you can't put in at least 10 minutes of work yeah. into retouching that before you post it and that's a special mm -hmm. job that someone's paid to do and then you also need someone to write the copy for the product and to be fair based on a lot of like reports and information i've seen most customers don't read that copy but you should you should if you want to be less disappointed read the copy. I guarantee we'll cut half of your returns. There's money here, right? Like you're paying someone to write the copy. You're paying someone to model it. You're paying someone to shoot it and edit it. You want to ensure that you bought enough product to generate the sales to cover the cost of launching it. Or you can reorder that product. You could reorder it. And get it in quickly. You could. That's true too. One of the places I worked, we had an issue where, I mean, and I'm part of this, I'm complicit in this too. We would see something at market. It would be a really nice brand. It would be like we're all in love with it. It costs like $500. This is when I was in dresses. So it's a $500 dress and our customer really wanted like a $60 dress. So it didn't make any sense yeah. to buy it, but we really wanted to have it. Or maybe we wanted to use it in marketing or we thought it would elevate our assortment. These are all these mental gymnastics that go on when we're talking about planning what we're going to buy. So we would be like, hey, let's just buy like six units. And it finally a finance was like, hey, listen, guys, you got to knock it off. Even if you sell all six of those units at full price, you're still not covering the cost of launching that product. And the reality is you guys are only buying six units. It's getting size broken right away. So then we're actually selling three units at like 70% off, like just knock it off. And so these are all the factors we have to think about 
when we're buying for e-com. Yeah, like knowing your customer, knowing what 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 they're willing to spend, knowing how much it's going to cost to get it live. Yeah, all of those things. Don't be in denial about it. So the other thing is like if something isn't performing, which happens a lot, it will be reshot in most cases. So maybe even a different model, maybe the styling will be different. I mean, at Nasty Gal, we had a lot of models in and out that just did not work. Like they, everything they wore, whether it was a shirt, a dress, a pair of shoes, it would be a dog. And so we'd have to take it all over to the studio and have them shoot it on other models. And we also had models that like, no matter what they were wearing, it could be just like the most garbage clothes ever. It would sell out. And sometimes it would be. <laughs> it would be. Yeah. <laughs> it actually was. We had this one model that you could put, you, we could have just taken a trash bag out, cut arm and head holes in it, put it on her. And like, it would have sold out in a day. People just loved that model. And I mean, all the models were beautiful. So I don't know what it was about her. I remember she was always really tan. I'm, I'm not sure. So if something's not working and you have to reshoot it, then it's like we're kind of going back to the beginning where we're paying a model, we're paying to get it retouched, mm -hmm. and so we're spending that money again. Next, it's really easy to get lost in the endless shopping options online. Like, I feel like there was a time when I could just Google something I was looking to buy and I might actually find that item, but now forget it. You, you Google green dress, you're going to get everything that exists in the, in the world, I think. Like on Google, yeah. Yeah, from like, you know, you might get something from a brand you might recognize like Gap or something like that. But then you're also going to get all of these like random, weird, direct from China. I hesitate to call them brands, but you know what I'm talking about, like Shein. Mm -hmm. And then you might also get some Etsy stuff. Well, and, and the brands that have more money can can work around this and can get themselves promoted mm -hmm. easier and faster within all these different avenues to get their green dress up onto the top. The first page is the ultimate page where you want to be, but that costs a lot of money. Right. Like, do you have an idea of how much that might cost? I mean, I guess it depends on the word, right? That's part of it. Yeah. It depends on how much competition there is because it's all based on, it's like an auction essentially. Um, so if someone's basically trying to sell a white shoe or mm -hmm. a green dress, that's going to cost a lot of money. That could either, that could be, you know, there's, there's a, there's a couple different, I mean, this is, this goes deep into like the marketing side of things, but for like a Google, like a merchant ad, which would be like a, a shopping ad where you actually see the product picture. If someone clicks into it, it could cost, I don't know, $3, $5, mm -hmm. To click every time, right? Every time a person clicks it. Yeah. And you know, you on, on the back end for the brand, they, they, they set a cap of how much they're willing to spend, you know, off most mm -hmm. of the time it's, it's, it's less, it's like under a dollar, but you know, if you really want to compete with a Nike, you know, you're, you're going to put the money out there, but those are all just if person clicks on that actual ad. So basically if you search green dress, the first results you see it doesn't mean that they're the best match for what you're looking for. And it doesn't even mean they're the best green dresses out there. But what it does mean is those retailers had the most money to play with. If it's an ad and then if it's, and then if it's like um, organic and let's say the green dress comes up is from urban outfitters, or you'll pretty much only see a major up there, right? They have mm -hmm. you know, Google wants to deliver to you the, the best, thing the most trustworthy thing possible they trust these larger these larger stores because they've been around longer they have a lot of content they have a lot of seo built in 
and they have a lot of like links to them, which means that they're trustworthy. So, I mean, the, the algorithm beyond behind what Google shows you changes. I mean, constantly, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to, to keep up and you can't really trick them. It's not like you can have a, um, a, a store that sells black dresses and, have your SEO say green dresses, you know, <laughs> Google will know, but if so, if you're a small brand and you really want to start ranking really high, it's, it's hard and it, and it takes a lot of time and it takes a lot of like finesse to kind of, to get there and a lot of work. So generally that, that kind of, that kind of stuff is outsourced to real professionals to, to get you onto those searchable pages as well as the advertising. So companies are obviously spending a lot of money there. And if you're like a smaller boutique, or an emerging brand, I mean, it seems like you would just drown, right? No one's ever going to find you. Yeah. Do you have any advice for people who are trying to find smaller, the smaller brands online? To actually find smaller brands online? Yeah. I, I always recommend, you know, like Garmentary support smaller brands. But one of the problems with a place like Garmentary is that they're taking a commission on all the products sold. So those stores have an e-commerce site, but Every time you buy something through Garmentry, it cuts into their already depleted margin. So finding out where that product, if you go to Garmentry, I mean, not, not to, I mean, I sell in Garmentry, I like Garmentry. I think it's a really great way to explore new brands and, and it's a good brand brand to um, support. But, you know, if you are really concerned about supporting a brand and making sure that they get all the money they can, then you'd have to, you'd find whatever you like and then go specifically to that 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 store or brand's webpage and purchase it directly through them because they're they're not going to get that commission cut taken out and they will get the full you know dollar value i obviously you know instagram's the, the an awesome way to find new brands that's kind of how i that's how i find new brands you know a lot of these brands you know they are they're so hard to find <laughs> it's super expensive to to um, to be on Instagram or Facebook and to get in front of the customer that, you know, that they deserve to be in front of. And that's one of the best, but the best reasons for these like multi-brand retailers that support smaller businesses. I feel like the pressure to provide free shipping is becoming greater and greater. And you can probably thank Amazon for that. And that costs a lot of money. I mean, it's a deciding factor for like 70% of the customers. If there's not free shipping, forget about I it. I totally agree. Me too. I do it too. I fall for it. Like I sent you a meme last week. Yeah, totally. And it, it, it really, it really hit me. Yeah. It's true. Like, and we'll, we'll talk about shipping a little bit more later, but mm -hmm. I see that the shipping threshold is $50 and I have $40 in my card. I'm like, uh, shit, I need to add a pair of socks. Yeah, It works on all of us, but it's important to remember that we didn't pay for the shipping, but the company did. And that can really add up. Mm-hmm. And then there's like influencers and swag and paying influencers yeah. to post. And we're not going to go too deep into that because we both have negative feelings about influencers. Yeah. But I mean, that's, that's, that's costly. Uh, and then there's, I, I call these appeasement costs, but basically think of all the times you've ordered something and it got lost by the shipping carrier or someone stole it oh. off your porch. Or mm -hmm. I just, I ordered a box of cleaning supplies last week from Grove. Clearly at some point UPS had, shredded the box uh it was held together by 
like a roll of tape. Mm -hmm. And when I opened it, half the product was missing. And so, you know, they have to refund me for that stuff, but Mm -hmm. they lost that product. And so there are all these other expenses to running an e-commerce business that you're, you're probably not thinking about, but they, they can add up depending on how great your warehouse is. They can get like your appeasement costs can get really high. Cause you want people to come back, right? Yeah. I mean, and, and it's, it's kind of like economies of scale, you know, where you want to get to that point where you're actually really profitable with running the business the way that it is. Obviously, you know, you can scale with the, the product photography. Mm-hmm. A lot of these things you can scale with. And it's not like you can really scale that, that well with these actual retail stores. Right, right. Having one store is like, it's doable. But the moment you open a second store... Mm-hmm. Everything is, it's not twice as complicated. It's like 10 times more complicated. Shuffling inventory. Yeah. Scheduling people and the customer. Oh, it is, it's a lot. Right, right. So next for e-commerce, you have to think about fulfillment. And that's otherwise known as getting your order assembled and shipped to you. Retailers can expect to spend, and this is going to sound like an exaggeration, but this is based on my own research and experience. A retailer can spend about $10 to make this happen. Now, I'm not talking about Amazon, although I'm sure their costs are a lot higher than you think too, but they have mega scale. We're saying they're going to spend about $10 and that's not including your free shipping or if you ordered a couch or something. Like this is $10 if you ordered a few things, normal size box, it's coming to you like normal ground shipping. Um, And that's because, you know, they have to pay someone to pack that stuff up and ship it to you. Well, Amanda, remember, you know, when we were in like the 80s and you'd see things on um, on TV, it would be like, you know, order this uh, 80s mix CD set, <laughs> but you have to pay $5.99 for shipping and handling. Like, I feel like that word and handling has just gone out the window because there's so much and handling. Right. What's and handling? You just throw it in a box. You're like, no, you don't just throw it in a box. Yeah, it's so much more complicated. Do you remember the Columbia House Music Club? Yes. And that was the thing, like you could get all these CDs for one cent, but then the shipping and handling would be like 20 or 30 bucks. Mm -hmm. And that sounded crazy. But now that I've worked in this industry for a long time, I'm like, yeah, somebody had to go pool your 20 free CDs, Yeah, make sure they got the right ones, put them in the box, make sure it was packed up so they wouldn't be destroyed, Mm -hmm. you know, tape it up, throw the label on it, pass it to the next person. It had to get packed onto pallets and then, you know, be handed off to the shipping carrier. I mean, it's just not that simple. And just the rent involved for, to, to house all that inventory. Yeah. I mean, a warehouse is not cheap. So larger brands, and we're talking Mm -hmm. like the big guys, anything that has like $50 $50 million to $75 million in annual sales, they own their warehouses. And like, if they're even larger than that, even larger than $75 million in sales a year, they're going to have multiple ones across the country so they can ship things out faster. So usually there'll be one on the East coast and one on the West coast, something like that. You know, in um, the, these companies are constantly focused on increasing their efficiencies at reducing their own in-house costs. So when they're at 50 million to 75 million, they can really reduce their costs. They will bring in, um, you know, if they're processing millions of orders, they're going to just try to cut every single penny possible, but that actually adds up. So streamlining their operation becomes extremely important and they will bring in these 
systems engineers that literally go through every single aspect of the logistics and shipping and warehousing in the process to optimize each piece of the logistics puzzle for them specifically and for their customers. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a, it's very complicated. Like I've watched demos of software that will help map out where the person who works in the warehouse should walk to pick up the orders and in which which order to save yeah. steps and time. I mean, it's exactly. I remember when I was at ShopBop, they they were investing in this new software. This was like, I mean, you know, you know, almost twenty years ago now, but the, you know, back then actually it was pretty incredible. It was like this little microchip that would track all of the product and went inside every single product, and you knew where every single product, even if it wasn't stored where it was supposed to be. Like the system knew exactly where it was to be shipped and packed. And it would just, you know, if, if it sold and the, and the, the packer needed to find it, all they did was just look at a little screen and they would know exactly where it was on like a GPS scanner essentially and go find it. It's not cheap. It's not cheap. I mean, here's another cost that we have to layer on there, but theoretically it saves money down the road, which is the idea. Mm -hmm. So a lot of brands have actually found success opening warehouses in these like rural, more economically depressed areas in the South and Southwest. You see a lot of brands shipping out of say like Nevada or South Mm -hmm. Carolina. You're not going to see a lot of warehouses in Manhattan or LA even because, you know, it's expensive, right? Like towns will give retailers big tax incentives to open there, even though these jobs for the most part are going to be barely a living wage if they're even a living wage and real estate is going to be substantially cheaper, which is good because you need a huge space for a warehouse because you can't just throw everything in there. Like it's got to be organized. It has to be logical. You have to be able to fit all these people in and a huge truck needs to be able to pull up to take all this stuff away. And I mean, you have all this other product coming in at the same time. So you need a lot of space and these rural areas also the wages for those areas tend to be a lot lower. So there's even more savings I mean, opening in a big city would mean much more expensive real estate, higher cost of living wages. It, it's, it, just it, be, it just doesn't make sense. Yeah. Uh, unless we're all going to go back to paying a handling fee on what we buy, which brings me to my next point. And I'm not going to go too deeply into it, but if you've been paying attention to the news at all, there are a lot of labor issues facing warehouse workers right now and, and always in terms of conditions in terms of safety, especially now in the era of COVID. Uh, A lot of these warehouse workers don't have benefits. They're really just like, I know, kind of like gig workers almost. And if we did bring back this idea of paying for handling, we might be able to rectify some of that. I I, I don't know. That's like a whole other conversation (laughs) there. But I mean, it is something to think about. Not that I'm saying that when the Columbia House Music Club was charging me $30 in shipping and handling, that they were providing a better warehouse environment for their workers, but but they may have been. May have been, yeah. I mean, generally what it comes down to is it gets, you know, it gets rolled into the cost of good, a cost of the goods that the customer's basically paying for. Absolutely. And that's another thing that drives up the cost of what mm-hmm. we pay for. Mm-hmm. And as, as we've talked about before, retailers are really hesitant to raise our retail prices too much because they think we're not going to buy the stuff anymore. And so then they have to take out that cost somewhere else. So it can be cheaper fabric, cheaper make, paying the warehouse workers a lot less. Well, I mean, and that also, that comes down to like the, the actual, the pricing and the strategy behind, behind that. 
it does, it's one of the caveats of being online is that the customer can immediately, you know, see what your competition is charging. And if you have a product that, you know, maybe doesn't have much competition or if it has a lot of competition, but you're doing it in a way that's innovative or that offers something else, then, you know, that's kind of the only way to really to beat that model because you, anyone can just go on and immediately just type into Google, you know, if you're looking for, I don't know, a television set, you can, you know, or a green dress or whatever, you can see what other people are charging for it and, and, and get the best price possible. People will spend the time on, on, on searching that out too. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, I'm, I'm that person. Like if it's some mm-hmm. sort of electronics device, I am like Googling for hours, mm-hmm. reading all the reviews, yeah. who's going to ship it for the least like i'm i'm part of this too i mean the internet has made it easy to be cheap right yeah so smaller retailers tend to outsource the fulfillment meaning the packing and shipping of their orders to a third-party logistics provider which is also known as a 3pl in the industry and then you know that can be easier in a lot of ways because they don't have to worry about salaries and facilities and benefits for more people and but it's also kind of more expensive or can be because they pay a fee per order and per unit. So it might be like, okay, for every order we pack for you, we're going to charge you a dollar right there. And then we're going to charge you 25 cents for the first item. And then like 10 cents for each item after that. And once again, that sounds really low, but that can really add up. Especially if the product you're, you're shipping is a lower price point, but if you're shipping like a $500 dress, then that's pretty negligible. But if you're shipping, you know, a $50 dress. Or like a $10 pair of socks. Ten Exactly. $10, yeah, even cheaper. If you're, if, if you're going down to like below $20, like that's, you know, that's a big chunk. It, re- it really is. And once again, this these costs are passed on to us as consumers. And like, yes, these 3PL providers, they can be cheaper in a lot of ways because, you know, you're not owning a warehouse and worrying about that. But you also, as a retailer, have very little visibility into the day-to-day operations of the warehouse. And, you know, things fall through the cracks. Uh, For example, these are things I've lived through. The 3PL may slow down receiving and shipping in order to save on manpower costs. So this can like impact the brand's business in a million ways. Like one, the order you placed might take longer to ship to you. But on the other side of that, remember, these warehouses are not just shipping product to you. They're also receiving shipments in order to have product to ship to you. And so often they might stay on top of these orders that are going out to the customer, but they might slow down or pull people off of the part of the business or the part of the warehouse where they're receiving the product. So what happens is you have less new product to sell that you're already paying your vendors for or reorders that you've been waiting for, waiting for, like maybe you have a waiting list, like they're just chilling over there. And as the stuff piles up, you can see a miss to business starting to happen. And I've lived through this. I have lived through having to go work at the warehouse myself to help move things mm-hmm. along. Yeah, I mean, it is crippling when you don't have the product to sell and you, you've either paid for the goods up front or you're on something called a net 30, which we might've talked about before, but that means, you know, you have 30, you basically have 30 day terms with the, the vendor. So you have 30 days technically to sell the goods, but if it takes 30 days to even receive the goods in, then, you know, you're not, you're not 
you're not making that up and it's 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 you're hemorrhaging money right and so in that situation you can either hold off on paying the vendor until Mm -hmm. the stuff is actually received and well there goes that relationship you should not violate those terms which is not to say that that doesn't happen because it happens a lot yeah and you know that vendor needs that money to pay their suppliers so it's awesome you know it's fucked up it's a asshole move right Mm -hmm. or you could say okay you know what we're we're a good business and we care about our vendors like they're our partners we'll pay them without receiving the order well what if you open that box and it's 50 units short and you already paid for it or what if somehow someone spilled hawaiian punch all over it before they shipped it i mean all kinds of crazy things can happen there or you got the wrong you got the wrong style in happens a lot too absolutely or there's a massive there's a massive quality issue that you see as soon as you pull it out mm-hmm. of the box. So that's a whole other ball of wax that's going to cost even more money to sort out. And you're already yeah. out the money that you paid the vendor. So these three PLs can be really challenging. I could talk about that for like hours, all the nightmares I've had. They're, they're great because they, you know, it takes that horrible logistic nightmare and gives it to someone who's super qualified that has streamlined it and, you know, is processing a lot of other brands and, you know, it's, they know the best practices technically. Right. Because just you or I can't just go in and be like, Hey, we're going to set up a warehouse. Like it's complicated and it requires like a lot of other things we've talked about on the show. It requires a lot of experience in a really specialized area. So, yeah. And lots of software and mm-hmm. just expertise. Absolutely. So next there's the packaging. I mean, everything comes in a box, right? Mm-hmm. The customer is actually paying for the more fancy unboxing stuff because that's going to get rolled into the cost of the product. And I think we should talk about this for a minute. This idea of unboxing some, <laughs> some e-com brands are like, fuck it. Like they just sh- ship the poly bagged garments into a box. Yeah. The poly bag is the bag, the plastic bag that each item was shipped from the vendor to the warehouse in. And you're required in most cases to do that. Uh, it protects the garment, you know? Yeah. If like rain or damage, you know, and sometimes it is, it's a good best practice if you have issues with, you know, boxes being ruined and, mm-hmm. and the product coming really destroyed. Absolutely. Like you don't know what that journey for that garment's going to be mm-hmm. like it could sit out on the dock in the rain. Uh, it could get, it could fall off the back of the UPS truck. I mean, a million things could yeah. happen. And I mean, and if it's a $500 dress, yeah, you kind of want to have that thing protected. Right. And even, even though it, like it's in a warehouse that maybe only holds clothes and gifts and accessories, yeah. those places are dirty. Like think about dust. Gross. Right. Yeah. So you don't want that all over your brand new stuff. So all the stuff is in poly bags. And so some brands are like, hey, we're just going to throw that into a box in the poly bag, tape it closed, slap on the shipping label and send it off to you. And yeah, in that situation, they're paying for the box and the label, but it's it's pretty cheap. But other brands are like, no, we have to have this unboxing experience. It has to feel aspirational. It has to convey the feeling of buying something in a real store so they're taking the garments out of the poly bag so that poly bag is just going in the trash uh then they're wrapping them in like say tissue paper once again another waste of of a resource they're probably going to throw in some other marketing assets like postcards maybe there's even like a special string to tie up the all of the tissue and Mm -hmm. a ribbon yeah a ribbon yeah the custom box, the custom box oh. with the custom Velcro closure with, you know, various coatings and prints and, you know, I mean, 
these things can cost, you know, $5, $6. I mean, they are not cheap. Oh, totally. Totally. So I, in the era of COVID, I have, uh, finally started using Madison Reed <laughs> and I will say the product is really great. Like, I think it makes my hair look awesome. I love it. But the packaging, the first time I opened the box, I was like, wow, I mean, mm. this is nice. But now that I'm like five months into it, I'm like, this is too much packaging. You know, like, yeah, it's going to get recycled, right? Yeah. It is all cardboard. It's recyclable. Once again, like making and recycling things, both of those use energy to, that we just don't need. And and the reality yeah. is that like the cost of all these little individual boxes are added into what we're buying in the first place. Like the company's not losing money because they gave you nice packaging. I mean, Hopefully they're not because they were smart enough to work that in. Yeah. But, you know, we're paying for that. And so, I don't know. I mean, what what do you think of this whole unboxing thing, Kim? Because I just feel like it's once again, like, people who are abstracted, like, they're distanced from what it is to be a customer, thinking that this is what customers want or something. Like, it builds a relationship or something. What, what do you think of that? Well, I think it's runoff from this, like, this really heavy reliance on like the influencer mm-hmm. experiential, very millennial um, thought point of view. I think particularly during this COVID time period, it's that's going to start changing and the customer is going to have to demand that this changes. Otherwise it's not going to change. They're going to keep thinking. And if they keep, you know, doing these unboxings and unveilings and showing the box, you know, that the, influencer got and you know not having that dialogue of how this is harmful to the environment or how much this this costs to produce to ship all those things um you know i i think it'll definitely change it just the cut the consumer mindset's just going to need to change and i think it is changing now you know as we get deeper into um reliance onto the gen z you know, they, they want things that are a little bit more um, sustainable or environmentally non-challenged. And um, that's going to start pulling away, um, hopefully. You know, on the other hand, it might keep blowing up, you know, as e-commerce continues to grow and the de- demand for the customer to have this really great experience with your brand and they keep loving it and keep, you know, you're not, (laughs) they're not going to stop. Um, I think maybe moving away into packaging that, you know, is made with environmentally friendly inks and is, it is recyclable, you know, any of this paper that you get that has a plastic coating on it, that has like a shiny coating, that's not recyclable. So moving into recyclable products would be, I guess, the next best thing. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or, or even poly bags, you know, they're, they're making they're all this amazing headway on these poly bags that actually are compostable right now, you know, they're not, but right. Um, right. I, I have seen that. And I think mm-hmm. it's just beginning. I think like it it's the first prototypes are out there and they're kind of weird, you know, they melt if they get hot or wet, but yeah. it's a start, right? Like we're getting there. And I think uh-huh. like, I, I mean, listen, I am anti-waste in all regards, but I will say like, the poly bag does serve a purpose, as we mentioned, like it makes yes. sure that things don't get dirty or ruined and have to be thrown out. And so it's one of those things where you're like, we can't, we can't get rid of this. So how do we make it better? Yeah. But once again, like I would have no problem 
opening my box from wherever and everything just being in the poly bags and no bells and whistles. I went down this rabbit hole a couple of nights ago where I was trying to see what's going on in the world when packaging. Like clearly someone somewhere is like, we we have to do a better job. And all that I was finding were all of these brands who were still creating this really aspirational over-the-top packaging, but they were like, oh, but it's, you know, it's 80% post-consumer materials. Yeah, but it's still not recyclable. <laughs> it's still not, and it's still, it's still more shit, you know? Shit, yeah. So I would urge anybody who cares about this uh, to really push on the brands about that. Like, hey. Mm-hmm. Your favorite brands. Tell them. Yeah, like. Like, stop it. I don't need the tissue paper and the ribbon and the dumb postcard that says thank you. Like, I already know you're grateful to get my money. Like, let's just call it. I mean, I do have to say, you know, because I do work in, I develop a lot of like packaging you know, with, with my team and we work with a bunch of different companies and a lot of them are working on more sustainable products, but they, they have, you know, like um, non-disclosure agreements. Like it is something that's coming but they're not sharing the details because they don't want anyone to knock them off yet. So it's going to come and I think it's going to flood. It's going to, there's going to be a floodgate opening in the next maybe year. I mean, I, I hope so. That makes me excited. That's what I want because now we're more reliant on e-com than we ever were. Mm-hmm. So it's time. It's time for some change. Yeah. So another cost of running an e-commerce business is shipping. And yes, you might be saying you're paying for shipping, but as we've discussed, a lot of times you're not. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So some brands will straight up say use UPS or FedEx and or the USPS, and they'll maybe negotiate discounted rates based on their volume. And in that case, UPS or FedEx or whoever the carrier is, they'll handle the entire shipment journey. So like the UPS truck will pull up to the warehouse the boxes will get loaded on. And also when it arrives at your house, it's going to be dropped off by UPS. But other retailers opt for using a different carrier process. So the carrier, which won't be UPS or FedEx or any recognizable name to you, will consolidate all the deliveries and actually truck them to the post office nearest the final destination. And then they'll hand it off to the postal service who will deliver it to your house. So You've definitely experienced this in your life. Yeah. Uh, I think I'm trying to think of some of the carriers. I know Nugistics is one of them, Narvar. I mean, you, if you've ever had a package sort of disappear off the radar for a little bit, this is probably who was doing it. And you know what? This is a lot cheaper. I mean, like significantly, like half the price for the retailer, but it does create a much greater chance of lost packages or longer delivery time because it's sort of like, you're relying on the first carrier to have enough packages to consolidate to go to the post office to like make that trip worthwhile. Uh, And then you're waiting for the post office to then like receive them and get them out to you. So it adds, it can add like a week onto it. But once again, it's like $2 to ship it. But it's a bad customer experience. It is. It is. And if you've ever lost a package this way you know what we're talking about like you're like oh yeah i recognize this this shipping setup because it's painful it's so painful another way a retailer might save on money for shipping is committing to one uh shipping service for both their inbound and outbound so like maybe it's ups and they say listen we're going to use ups for all of our shipments from vendors to the warehouse and then we're also going to use it to ship everything out and 
So it's sort of like a bulk discount, if you will. Yeah, you can like negotiate better rates. And, you know, if you share what your your growth rate is and you're like, okay, well, you know, we're, we're expecting to be shipping, you know, 30% up from last year, you know, they ultimately want more and more and more of, of you know, more, more shipments and they would love your entire business if you're growing. These carriers are hungry. They will call your office every day. Oh my God. They will send people constantly. There's always someone showing up like in person, <laughs> in person. That is rough. It's so odd. <laughs> oh, I hate that. I hate an in-person sales situation. And so, you know, shipping, as we've touched on earlier, I mean, it's a pain point for customers, right? Like Kim added a note in here that says often abandoned carts come from paying for shipping. Mm -hmm. And it's true. Like I will get to the checkout and then I'll find out that it's going to cost $15 to ship. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, hell no, hell no. But no, yeah. I'm like, oh, yeah. Like, nah. For some reason in the human conscience, paying for shipping has become this like sticking point. People are like, absolutely not. I will not pay for this thing to be shipped. And I don't really know where that's coming from. I'm sure there's articles out there, but it's really hilarious. You know, it's like, well, you would pay to drive to the store, you know? Right. Right. And I do think so. After you and I talked about this a couple weeks ago when we were working on this episode, I was thinking about that a lot. Like, why why do I always say, oh, it's going to be $55 in total with shipping. But if I spend $50, it's going to be free shipping. And so I'll go back in and add in something else they yeah. don't even want. And that's, that's a method that like ups to, to yeah, to, to get your um, average order value up. And, and, and it works. Like, I have been in long meetings where we are just hemming and hawing, dissecting this idea of like, if we increase the threshold to $100, what will the sales look like? Mm -hmm. You know, okay, if we take it down to 25 for just two days, like what will happen there? And I mean, brands are planning their promotion strategy around shipping stuff, yeah. like, and, and the days that they're going to give you a discounted shipping. So I was thinking about this a lot. And I think the mental exercise that I always go through is like, okay, well, I could pay $55 and I'm going to get this shirt and then the other $15 is going to be nothing. Like it's nothing. That $15 is nothing. Mm -hmm. Or I could add on a pair of socks, spend yeah. the same amount of money and get a t-shirt and socks. And so basically for all of us, like to us, shipping is nothing. It's like we're just throwing money. We don't, we don't feel like we have to pay for it. We should pay for it because as you mentioned, like if I decided instead I was going to go buy that shirt in real life, I'd have to, you know, drive a car or take an Uber there or take the subway, whatever. You'll go to the mall. You'll definitely get a snack. Yeah. You're going to need a snack. You're probably going to get tired and need a coffee. And then, you know, maybe, mm -hmm. maybe you didn't go to the mall, but you're like in the city and you got to pay for parking, you know? Don't forget about your time. How much is your time worth? Yeah, exactly. And so basically what we're saying is like paying for shipping is paying for something like yeah. it's not it's, it's not nothing yeah. and it's not you're not throwing money away but there's something in our psyche that makes us think that i think it just was it's like slowly built in because even with amazon you're not getting free shipping you know you do pay for that right you pay like a fee it's like a hundred and something dollars a year you know oh and i i mean i don't know about you but like i feel like amazon has 
trained us to do other services mm-hmm. for Amazon. For example, here we have a, in Philly, we have a big hub where you can go pick stuff up and get it a day earlier and not yeah. have to pay for shipping. And so, yeah. So then if we need something and really the only thing we ever order from Amazon is cat food, but it's always turns into this urgent thing where we need it right away. And so, of course, because it's the worst. Yeah, it's right. So then we're driving over to the Amazon hub, parking the car, going and getting it like, you know, it's we're doing the shipping job for them. So we're also yeah. still paying for it. And I think this is just something else that we all need to think about in terms of our behavior about e-com. And we're going to get into, there's, there's more things. We're going to get into yeah. all kinds of deep psychological stuff. Yeah. So, well, and, and then also with shipping is don't forget, like when someone orders like one day air, if you're getting, if you want it, like, if you want it fast, and let's say this is, this was, I always thought this was real. I don't know if they've changed it. I don't think they have. If you order one day air and you are, if you're like, you know, I used to live in New York and I worked for a store in Brooklyn and someone would order something to Manhattan, but they wanted it overnight. If you order it ground within that same, um, uh, like kind of just area, you'll get mm-hmm. it in a day. Right. You know? um, as long as it ships right out, you know, um, obviously if you order expedited shipping, usually your order is, is, um, it goes out faster. It gets, um, it's put mm-hmm. in priority position from like, from the standpoint of the retailer, they'll, they'll push it out faster. But then even if it's going not very far, it will get on a plane and go all the way down to like, God, where is it? It's like North Carolina or something. Mm-hmm. Or, or Georgia. I don't I forget where it is. It's down somewhere in the south. And then come back. Right. <laughs> then come back to New York and then get delivered. You just gave whatever you bought like a huge carbon yeah. footprint for no reason. Yeah. You took that garment on a plane ride when it could have just been a truck ride. And it could have just been trucking exactly. Hey, think about how expensive it is normally to get on an airplane yourself and go somewhere. Well, so that's why like paying to ship a piece of clothing also costs money. You know, it's going on a trip. I mean, I know that there's a lot of retailers now that are, you know, if a lot of like New York retailers, there is like different, like first, like one day service, which is kind of like a car service. Also. Mm. But once again, think about taking an Uber across town. You're, mm-hmm. That's what's mm-hmm. happening there. Like yeah. shipping is not a nothing. It's a, it's a many actions physical yeah. atoms yeah. from one yeah. point to another. Yeah, it's, 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 it's real and it costs money and it, and it should. And yeah. I think if we had to pay for a little bit more shipping, we might be a little smarter mm-hmm. about what we bought. So, which brings me to another thing that involves moving around a lot of stuff, which is returns. So in oh. your regular in-person yeah. brick and mortar store, the average return rate is about 10%. And that wouldn't include returns that came from online, but a return to a store, which you know, a lot of brands do. Uh, and after we go through all of this, you'll understand why so many stores are like, please bring your returns to us. Mm-hmm. So for online fashion, the return rate ranges from 25% on the low end. And to me, that seems totally, those people have a weird return policy if it's only 25% to 50%. So that means mm-hmm. half of the things that get bought come back. So like you went through that whole process of logistics and warehouse and shipping and it's all coming, it's all coming back. back. So I, I'm a serial returner because I don't want to hold on to anything that I'm not going to love. And 
you know, I don't actually buy that much stuff at all right now for a multitude of reasons, but it's one of those things where I have always justified buying things because I was like, oh, I'm going to probably return it anyway. And I'm trying to reset my own behavior here. So I'm learning from this as well, guys. So 41% of shoppers buy multiple sizes and items with the intention of returning some or most of them. And I'm guilty of that. I'll be like, I have to go to this wedding mm-hmm. and I'm going to order six dresses and I know I'm only going to keep one. Like everyone's doing that all the time, right? Yeah. And and I think a lot of that comes down as it's also kind of the fault of the brand for not having the most transparent. And I, this is something we might, might talk about later, but like the size mm-hmm. guide is always, always, garbage. always. Like I've been, I, always. yeah, don't get me started. They're rarely accurate. Rarely. Yeah. So there's a reason why this is happening. And, you know, and I think a brand needs to, to be like, okay, all of our dresses, half of them are being returned. There needs to be a lot, a lot deeper look because they are just hemorrhaging money. Mm-hmm at why that is and if it's because of of sizing then fix it (laughs) make a better brand experience for the customer take away the guesswork i have very strong feelings about Mm -hmm. that because once again you know what it means is it means you have to hire a couple of people and all they do is measure garments when they come into the warehouse and update the the size guides and i don't understand why that doesn't happen because We're going to go into this, but returns are really expensive for the retailer. They're aggravating for the customer. Yeah. They're expensive for the retailer. 89% of shoppers, so basically everyone, has returned something online in the last three years. And I laughed at that because I was like, what about the last three weeks? Mm-hmm. Uh, one third of shoppers have returned something in the last three months. And this is pre-COVID statistics, so I would assume they'd be much higher, Right. So, you know, we touched on like size being one of the primary reasons for returns and 30% of returns are because they're too small. The garment's too small. 22% is because it's too large. So half. You go 50, 52%. Yeah, right there. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, there are people who are just like, "Eh, I I, I changed my mind. That's 12% of people. And changed my mind could really mean anything where they get it in and they realize it's made out of like polyester or something, or it's like, or they didn't like the, like, you know, change my mind is so vague. I know. I know. Or when people say not as described, that's 5%. And I think mm-hmm. that can go back to people reading the copy. Like someone yeah. works on that all day. <laughs> but yeah. I would also say that like companies now are realizing that no one reads that copy. And so they're starting to pull budget out of that and they're hiring mm-hmm. less copywriters or they're automating it. So all you're really getting is some Google gop about the brand and maybe like size medium has a 32 inch chest. And that's like not even true. It turns out. Yeah. Retailers are actually pulling their money away from this function because they don't think anyone cares. But I say, if we all took our time and read, we would cut our returns in half alone. So mm-hmm. in most cases, returns are free. I mean, I can barely think of anyone who makes you pay for return. Smaller companies usually make you pay for returns. Yeah. I feel like free people maybe charge you six bucks or something. And I know some places charge you more. So there's pressure to make returns free for sure. Just like shipping. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it makes you buy less, you know, cause you're like, Oh, what if I don't like it? I'm that person. Cause once again, I'm like shipping, like that's losing money when you pay for it. So it costs the average retailer about $6 to ship the return back to their warehouse. Like it's not free. It's a lot of money. And so when someone charges you $6 for a return, it's, it's pretty legit. 
And what you're not paying for is the handling of the return. They have to pay someone to process the return and return the product to inventory and, you know, check it out, make sure it's fine. That's like being, being in the returns department is kind of like being in the same circle of health. <laughs> it is. It is. Like, you just get a bunch of junk to, and like, like kind of angry, upset people, people that you know, just are dissatisfied. Like, it's just, it is. <laughs> it's, it's terrible. It's not. The it's terrible. Part. And I, I'm going to tell you, I, I worked for a small startup where we had all the returns sent back to our office and we had someone whose job it was to process the returns, but she also was doing all this other customer service and writing copy for the site and probably doing like 17 other jobs. Cause you know, it's a startup. So they would pile up and customers would be mad. Cause they'd be like, I sent this back a month ago. I haven't got my money back. So least priority, least priority. Right. So myself and my assistant buyers, we would process the returns just to like help out, you know, cause that's like what startup culture is like. But you also need that inventory back to sell it. You, you do. Resell it. You do. Exactly. And let me tell you, processing returns is a nightmare. First off, the box or mailer or whatever it is, is taped up in the most complicated ways ever. You're trying to get it open with some scissors without cutting what's inside. When you open it, chances are it's not folded. They haven't buttoned or zipped it up. It's a wrinkled hot mess. You got to lay it out. Mm-hmm. reassemble it sort of it might need to be re-steamed because it's such a hot mess and so then you got to send it off to someone else it's definitely likely on some occasions that they have been worn once or twice before. it's true I've... so there's deodorant stains mm-hmm. there's lipstick mm-hmm. there's makeup even if it's a try-on or it's a full wear it out and return absolutely and sometimes you know it's a was in a household for a day or two where there were tons of pets mm-hmm. and cigarette smoke and yeah, yeah, no exactly. one's going to want to buy that either. I mean, imagine if you got that product in the mail. So you just sort through all of that and you have to get the product back in some semblance of condition to be resold, fold it all back up. Or it goes, it goes into sample sale bin. Yeah. I mean, you got, it's, it's like a whole process, right? And like, you have to put it back in a new poly bag. Like you're not going to send it back in the ripped open one. That would be gross. Also, so you got to repoly bag it. And and that usually means that it also needs a new skew sticker. Exactly. So you got to print that out. And it's like to do that, you have to get get a computer, log in, and return it to the to the inventory. I mean, this is excruciating, right? It's and then the you worst. you print out that label. You're like, oh, I'm done now. No, now it has to get put away in the bin oh. where it belongs in the warehouse. So it's just it's basically it's the equivalent of putting away your clothes like your own clothes after you do the laundry or something, you know, but like adding some paperwork to it. Yeah. It's just, oh, you gotta like scan stuff in to locations. I mean, it, it's notoriously painful. Here's here's another one. What if the person who placed the return, the customer didn't include any information in the envelope. So then you have, you have to like go on yeah. a hunt where you try to figure out who bought that skew when it's just, a, it's just a whole thing. And, and, I mean, in my experience, it takes a good 10, 15 minutes to execute a return. It's a lot of time, right? So it it's no surprise that 52% of warehouse managers don't have the ability or resources, meaning like the money to pay people, to determine whether returned items should be sent to the vendor, moved into inventory, or discarded. Like to actually have that person sit there and be like, it's missing a button. Mm-hmm. It smells like cat pee. It is has lipstick on it. And yeah. also the same study revealed that 44% of distribution center managers considered returned items as a, quote, pain point in their operations. And I would say that's like the understatement of the year. Mm-hmm. So 
some brands use a third-party company to process returns, like what, much in the same way they might be using a third-party to process their regular shipments. And uh, if you've ever done a return and it takes you to a website that says Narvar or Nugistics, that's that's what's happening. And so you're not shipping your product, your your return back to the warehouse it came from. It's going somewhere else. And this is going to lead us to something we're going to talk about later, which is that a lot of returns get destroyed. They never go back to the site to be sold again. Now, that startup I was talking about where I would have to help process the returns, we did. We did return it to inventory. But that's pretty unusual. Um, A lot of retailers have also shifted to a model where the customer's money is automatically refunded when the return package is picked up by the carrier. And that's because this process is so time consuming. What you have happen is the UPS truck pulls up at the warehouse with just like a pallet of all these rando return packages. And they kind of just go in the corner. Cause like Kim said, it's your lowest priority. Like you want to get the new orders out. And so customers, I mean, I've, I've been in this boat where I've been like, uh, I sent that back like a month ago. Where's my money? You know? So th- they're trying to work on that process too, uh, to make customers happy. Well, I mean, also they are, they are working on from like a customer point of view, because from a customer point of view, it is it, it, doing, going through the return process can be really frustrating and annoying and, you know, unsatisfactory when you're already dissatisfied with the product itself, you know, so there are, mm-hmm. there are, you, you, you might go to um, one of your favorite brands and the, you go through this like portal experience of returning the goods yourself and potentially it turns into you, you know, using that money immediately and being able to turn around and buy something else or exchange it really easily having like a really awesome experience that you don't even have to talk to anyone to do. And then you get like a, you know, a UPS label printed out right there on the spot and either that's paid for by the company or it will end up getting deducted from your, your return. And it's all just super seamless. Like that kind of experience you know, it's, it's kind of the new mode and the new way of things going forward. So I think from the consumer standpoint that, you know, there definitely are changes from that, the the original, you have to email customer service, get a return Mm -hmm. number, then go to the post office, print on a thing and pack it up. And, you know, like all that stuff, like having that, a, a better experience, I think will definitely change things in the future. Hi, it's me, Amanda, again. My convo with Kim was so fun that it ended up being almost three hours long. (laughs) So this will be another to-be-continued episode coming in just a few days. During the pandemic, while we are all at home more and possibly becoming burned out on Netflix, I know I am, I'm trying my hardest to push out two episodes per week on Sunday and Wednesday. When the pandemic ends, or I get a job, We will shift to one episode per week, but until then, why not, right? Our next episode with Kim will focus on the environmental impacts of e-commerce. Spoiler alert, there's good news and bad news. Such is life, right? I wanted to take a moment to talk to you about a trend I'm trying to start. (laughs) It's even got a zazzy hashtag. Hashtag oops, I wore it again. Before I explain it to you, let me give you some not-so-fun facts, and I mean really unfun facts. 
One recent study commissioned by Hubbub, a London-based sustainability firm, found that 41% of all 18 to 25-year-olds feel the pressure to wear a different outfit every time they go out. Okay, I've been there. I get it. And I was a lot older than 25 when I was feeling that way. Just, just to be transparent. Another 33% of women, regardless of their age, consider an outfit to be old after wearing it fewer than three times. Three times, guys. Three times. And when it comes to dresses, it's even worse. 72% of women will wear a dress only one time. Isn't that crazy? I think this monster of a phenomenon has been created by several factors. First is the rise of super cheap, super trendy, super accessible fashion, a.k.a our good friend, fast fashion. It's so easy to dispose of an outfit when the next one is already on its way to your house. Next is the -the over-the-top crazy markdowns that have been flooding the market for the last few years, as some of these fast fashion retailers like H&M and Forever 21 have been marking stuff down to like 80% off in an attempt to right-size their inventories. We'll be talking about these inventory issues in an upcoming episode with Janine, so you won't want to miss that. Anyway, it's hard to think of anything as less than disposable when it costs, you know, $5. And last, I hate to say this, but you know what's coming. Social media. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. I've read so many trend reports and think pieces over the last few years that say the same thing. Most women, regardless of age, feel embarrassed appearing on social media in the same outfit twice. As if we're all celebrities or something. And, you know, I guess social media does give everyone the opportunity to feel a little bit of celebrity with each like and comment. I get it. I have a ton of problems with this. Probably not surprising to you. Let's talk about the softer ones first. (laughs) Here's some advice for you. If your friends and acquaintances would actually judge you for wearing the same outfit twice, they are terrible people. And probably not your true friends. I know, but you know I'm right. (laughs) Second, there's nothing aspirational about just consuming, consuming, consuming. Gross. The next time you think about buying an outfit just for the gram, I would ask you to do this. Close your eyes. Picture all of the clothes you've worn in the last month on a pile behind you. Now picture all of the clothes you've worn in the last year. Okay, what about the last five years? Now realize that around 75% of that mountain of shame, it's in a landfill somewhere right now. Even if you didn't throw the unloved clothes in the trash yourself, they ended up there. So back to my idea. Hashtag oops, I wore it again. Let's start rewearing our clothes. Crazy, right? Maybe we're, it's going to be the same ways we always do. Like some garments just pair well with the same shoes and accessories every time. And we know it's just how it is. I have a dress that I only wear with this one t-shirt and I've never worn it any other way. I've worn that outfit probably 20 times. I've never mixed it up. It's hard for me to imagine how to mix it up, to be honest. But there are other opportunities hanging in my closet right now. We can challenge ourselves to mix it up, to use other stuff we own, whether it's jewelry, layers, hats, belts, shoes, hot makeup looks, all to create a new outfit. 
Let's be proud of buying less. Let's be proud of buying better. Let's be proud of our talent for putting it all together. I can't wait to see what you do with your clothes. Tag us and or use hashtag oops I wore it again and we will share it on Instagram. Thanks for listening to another episode of Clothes Horse. Have a show idea? Want to tell me I've totally gotten it wrong? Maybe you just want to share your love of Delia's? Email me, clotheshorsepodcast at gmail.com. Or follow us on Instagram at clotheshorsepodcast. I have to say, and this is a very unhumble brag, our content has been looking pretty, pretty, pretty good lately. Basically, I'm using my quarantine to learn new graphic design skills while also learning how to edit audio. You can also follow us on Twitter at clotheshorsepod. Still don't know what I'm doing there. Mostly just retweeting stuff about social justice, but, you know, maybe I'll get better at it. (laughs) If you like what you're hearing, please leave us a rating and maybe even a review on Apple Podcasts. Somehow it will bring more listeners to us, question mark. And tell a friend. I get so stoked when someone posts about us on Instagram. It feels good to know that someone is listening. Thanks as always to Dustin Travis White for our excellent music and audio support. Bye.